My name is uh, Professor Kangelani Zuma. Uh, I'm the divisional uh, executive uh, within HSRC in the division called uh, Human and Social Capabilities. Uh, I will be a, a co-chair to, to the webinar that we have today. And also I am joined by my co-chairperson, Kukezo Ramatumbu uh, from, from SANAC. Uh, who will be co-chairing uh, this uh, webinar with me today. Maybe do you want to uh, say something, Kukezo, before we start? Um, good morning, colleagues. Uh, a very good welcome to the AL HI um, Adolescents Living with HIV webinar. Um, we hope to have a fruitful engagement with you, as Prof Kangelani has already indicated. My name is Kukezo Ratumbu, and I am the Adolescent Girls and Young Women's Ambassador at the Sonic Trust, and I look forward to having a fruitful engagement with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kukezo. Um, uh, uh, colleagues, we, we all are aware, uh, our, our presentation that uh, will be uh, my colleagues that are going to take you through it, and uh, we'll introduce colleagues uh, momentarily. We are uh, going to be listening to a presentation on a you know, uh, living with HIV, what do we know about adolescents that are living with, um, with HIV? Uh, you, have all, you all have received uh, the program uh, that a list of our colleagues who will be presenting uh, will be uh, introduced uh, momentarily. We'll just introduce them just before they do uh, their presentations. So we'll give a brief uh, introduction to them. So you all have... Uh, uh, the, 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 the program that uh, we'll have Koketso uh, who will give us some opening remarks. And then I will come in to introduce uh, my uh, colleagues that will be doing the presentation. I uh, will listen to, to the key findings from the study. Uh, then after that, we'll have a, a discussion uh, by Dr. Farid um, Abdullah. And then also uh, after that, we'll have uh, another discussion on uh, relevance for planning and programming by uh, Precious uh, Mahokodi, who will also be introduced uh, at a later stage. And then uh, I'll come back uh, to handle the discussions as well as questions. Just some uh, indication, colleagues, that if there are questions that colleagues would like to ask, uh, we'll open up for those questions, but uh, would like to encourage colleagues to use uh, the chat platform to send questions there. Uh, and uh, if they need to send uh, questions to particular uh, uh, presenters, uh, they are welcome to do so. Or they can send, uh, if they have anonymous questions, they would like to anonymize themselves, they can send those questions to uh, our host. Uh, it's Tabiso, who is operating uh, uh, the Zoom uh, platform. Colleagues, just also to indicate that uh, the, the, the webinar will be recorded. And I will take it that uh, colleagues uh, would consent to, to the recording. Uh, if they have uh, objections, then they can indicate so. Otherwise, I take it that uh, we've got a uh, full consent from colleagues for, for, for the webinar to be, to be recorded. So that is, in a nutshell, just briefly uh, uh, what is going to happen. And also, colleagues, just to really indicate that uh, we are very excited to come to this point especially looking at this important issue of HIV and AIDS among adolescents. We are all aware that uh, the last decade uh, has seen a significant progress globally 
and also nationally in response to, to responding to HIV and AIDS as, as, as a pandemic. We've seen great work that has been happening. However, we still have serious challenges among young ones. We have uh, many young people living with HIV and the number of them not knowing that they are living with HIV and more so a number of them who are living with HIV who are on ARVs uh, not actually being aware that they are taking ARVs and that speaks to the issues around the stigma that is still carried out, uh, that is still happening in our society. So this work that has been going on for some time, it's really come at an opportune time. And this big project that colleagues uh, will be presenting, uh, it aims to provide an insight into the adolescent uh, HIV epidemic in the country by looking historically at where we're coming from with the National HIV Prevalence Survey that has been conducted since 2005 up to 2017. So this is a lot of data that has been interrogated, a lot of relevant data that has been uh, interrogated. So the findings that you'll be listening to, they don't only look at quantitative data, but also combine qualitative data from another work that is done by my colleagues who are in the Mzanzi Wako study. So we are looking forward to getting knowledge and information about this wealth of data that has been collected. So without wasting time, I'm gonna give my colleague Kuketso, who has already been introduced, just to give some a few remarks before we get into our, our presentation. Over to you, Kukas. Thank you, Prof. Um, as already indicated, my name is Goketso Ratumbu, and I would like to welcome you to the a a Adolescents Living with HIV webinar. And as I had already said as well, I sit at the Senate Trust and am as well co-chairing today's engagement. So the purpose of today's engagement is to discuss the lived experiences of adolescents living with HIV, supported by the Human Science Research Council and the UCT's AIDS and Society Research Unit. The project aims to understand the context and lived experiences of adolescents aged 10 to 19 living with HIV in South Africa. This concord is usually understudied and therefore the need to identify the kinds of interventions available to their disposal is important, especially as we enter the fourth decade grappling with the HIV pandemic. To provide a bit of context, globally more than 2 million adolescents are living with HIV, while many more are at risk of contracting HIV. The latest Tembisa model has indicated that approximately half a million adolescent girls and young women aged 15 to 24 are living with HIV in South Africa and indicated approximately 5 million women 15 years and older are, living, are also living with HIV in South Africa. While new HIV infections have fallen in the country by 18% since 2016, with an estimated 66,000 new infections in 2019, the situation of HIV infections among adolescent girls and young women still remains bleak. Young people are less likely to test to HIV and link to prevention and treatment timelessly and also remain in care compared to adults. So adolescents living with HIV largely belong to two distinct groups. Those who have acquired HIV at infancy and are heavily antiretroviral therapy experienced and those who acquired HIV 
more recently in their teen years. The first cases of mother-to-child transmission of human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, were indicated more than two decades ago. And since then, several thousands more have been reported in South Africa. In the early, two, in the early 1980s, the majority of perinatally acquired HIV children did not survive beyond childhood. However, combined antiretroviral therapy for perinatally HIV acquired children has prolonged their survival in the past two decades. Many have reached adulthood. As the perinatally HIV infected adolescent teens or, or, or girls become sexually active, they are in turn at risk of pregnancy and transmitting HIV to their children. While addressing the needs of HIV infections among adolescents is a national priority, the optimal treatment regimen for children and adolescents remains a challenge in South Africa and internationally. There's a lack of information with regards to pharmacokinetics and safety and efficiency data in children and adolescents, and HIV infected, infected adolescents have to confront psychological issues, maintain adherence to drugs, and learn to negotiate sexual relationships while undergoing rapid physical and psychological development. It is important to note that identifying strategies to keep young people engaged into care is complex, especially at this critical age where they are going through uh, puberty. So in the context of youth HIV prevention in, uh, interventions, often there's an immense amount of effort that is focused on preventative programs, which is completely justifiable when taking into consideration the increasing infections among the youth. However, it is important that we ensure that these interventions do not further alienate AGYW or youth who are already living with HIV, contributing to the stigma, discrimination, and segregation of people living with HIV. It is important to have programs that empower young people holistically in their diversities and as well as re and regardless of their health status. Goal one, two, and three of the National Strategic Plan 2017 to 2022 speaks to reaching each of all the key and vulnerable populations, including adolescents living with HIV, with customized and targeted preventions and treatment interventions that are including goal four of addressing the social and structural drivers that are grounded in goal five human rights. One of the core sub-objectives is ensuring the provision of rehabilitation, comprehensive psychological support, and mental health services for young people living with and affected by HIV and TB. Humanizing the public health approach beyond the test and treat model remains at the center of ensuring epidemic control in the country and ensuring that the promotion of healthy behavior is adopted by those that are infected and those that are not. So therefore, I would like to say that we look forward to a fruitful engagement where our speakers will be sharing their findings with regards to the project and possibly recommendations on how to optimize our approaches. And I'd also further like to encourage all the participants to please write their questions and comments in the, in the, in the comment box uh, for their speakers and also engage fruitfully. I would like to hand over back to Prof Zuma to introduce the first speaker and I thank you. 
Thank you very much, Koketso, uh, for, for really uh, positioning the presentation into the whole picture of where we are with uh, uh, the epidemic and also the relevance of this work, uh, especially uh, to the issues that are relevant to the future leaders of our society. Without uh, much ado, colleagues, uh, I'm going to invite my first presenter, uh, Dr. Imba uh, Naidu, uh, who is a senior research specialist within uh, HSRC, to give her presentation on key findings uh, from the study. Over to you, Imba. Imba. Morning, everyone. Um, thanks. Oh, yeah. um, I'm going to stop sharing my video so that I can continue. Thanks, Tabo. Um, if you can project the, the slides. Okay. Um, I'm presenting on behalf of the team that analyzed the SAPSIM data sets, and our presentation of the study key findings uh, will be delivered in four parts by the four presenters that are listed there. So I'm going to start off with our results from the National HIV Household Surveys, and we call it SAPSIM in short. Um, I'll then be followed by Dr. Rebecca Hodes from UCT, who will present the Mzanzi Walker findings. Then my colleague, Ms. Alicia North, will present on the desktop review. And finally, Dr. Nampumalelo Zungu will present the methods summary and recommendations of the study. Next slide, please, Tabo. Thanks. So here we have our study objectives. Our target group in the study are adolescents living with HIV, age 10 to 19 years in South Africa, and we call them ALIVE. So our three study objectives for this target group where to describe their characteristics and trends, explore HIV risks, and identify concerns and gaps for programs that are targeted towards ALIVE. Now, the social impact bond um, focuses on 15 to 19-year-old females. In our analysis, where possible, we stratified by three age bands, which are 10 to 14-year-olds, 12 to 14 year olds and 15 to 19 year olds. And this was to be able to highlight important risks for HIV within each of these age groups. We do have separate questionnaires for each of these age, age groups in our SAPSIM uh, surveys. We then further stratified by sex and included both HIV negative and HIV positive adolescents in the analysis. And you will see these um, come through as I report them in the slides. The reason for this is the importance of understanding specific HIV related vulnerabilities by sex and age for adolescents as a group and within those age bands. Next slide, please. So here we have a listed an overview of the presentation that I will cover. We have nine areas that we will cover today. And in the next slide, Tabo, I'll start off with the demographics. So here we report a total of 3.7% of all adolescents are living with HIV. Of those age 10 to 14 years, we have 2.7% who are HIV positive. 
Of those aged 15 to 19 years, we are 4.9% who are HIV positive. And then on the next slide, uh, Tabo, I'll just speak about um, HIV by locality and province. Over half of a life aged 10 to 19 years live in urban areas, compared to 42.5% who live in rural informal areas and 4.3% who live on farms. Most alive live in KZN and Gauteng and Eastern Cape with the lowest proportion of alive living in um, Northern Cape. In the next slide, Tabo, um, we speak about school attendance and employment. We found the majority of adolescents aged 15 to 19 years were still in school. Overall school attendance was higher among adolescents not living with HIV compared to ALIVE, our target group. 2.4% of females, so a quarter of females aged 15 to 19 years were not attending school. And among those females who were not attending school, we found 19% had not completed grade 12, whilst around 6% had completed grade 12, which is matric in South Africa. Among alive, out of school, all males and nearly all females were not employed. Among those not living with HIV, 7.5% of males and 5.1% of females were employed. So much lower than those who were not employed. Next slide, please. So we report on disability and orphanhood. Our disability data are based on self-reports in SEPSIM. We found 1% of all 15 to 19 year olds reported having a disability in our 2017 survey way. For orphanhood, um, it's defined as having lost one or both parents. We looked at orphanhood between 2012 and the 2017 survey waves. The red bars in this graph um, are for 2012 and the blue bars are for 27. So I'd like to draw your attention to the bars on the far left, where we found a decline in orphanhood among alive from 55.7% in 2012 to 43.7% in 2017. If we then look at the next couple of bars, which talks to, sorry, previous slide, um, thanks which talks to maternal uh, orphanhood and paternal orphanhood. Um, we see that maternal orphanhood declined slightly from 14.3% to 13.4%. However, for paternal orphanhood, there was an increase. So we had 17.4% in 2017 compared to 15.2%. The main decline in orphanhood was among those who had lost both their parents, so the double orphans which was 26.2% in 2012 and nearly 13% in 2017. Okay, and now you can go to the next slide, please, Tabo. So here we have HIV prevalence among adolescents for those aged 10 to 14 and 15 to 19 years from 20, 2005 to 2017, as well as the overall 10 to 19 age group. So firstly, for the 10 to 19 age group, which is the square on the far left, 
HIV prevalence declined from 3.6% in 2005 to 3% in 2012. But then we had an increase in, to 3.7% in 2017. In all years, females aged 15 to 19 years had the highest HIV prevalence. If we look at the total HIV prevalence for adolescent males, so if we look at the bar, the, the bar graph at the bottom, just to draw your attention to the total males, it increased from 1.7%. So if you look at the gray bars to 3.3% in 2017. So this is the yellow bar for total males. Then comparing prevalence for males and females, if we look back to 2012, HIV prevalence among female adolescents was eight times higher than males in the 15 to 19 year age group. This difference of 5.6% versus 0.7% was significant. So in the next slide table, um, I will speak to HIV incidence. So for adolescents aged 10 to 19 years, annual HIV incidence was 0.5% in 2012, declining to 0.39% to in 2017. For those aged 15 to 19 years, it was 0.87 in 2012 and remained around the same amount of 0.82% in 2017. So here, although the data available uh, to estimate HIV incidence in this age range were limited, we do know that there are new infections among them which have been demonstrated uh, over time. But notably, the incidence data were insufficient for reliable estimates by sex for younger adolescents aged 10 to 14 years. So here we reported on the 15 to 19 and the overall 10 to 19 years. So if we go to the next slide, Tabo, um, I'll just speak a little bit about the 1990 targets and our achievements for this age group. So if we look at on the far right, um, there's just a summary of the 1990s for 10 to 19 year, year olds. We have 62.3% who knew their status. 65.4% of those who knew their status were on art. And viral load suppression among alive on art was just over 78%. So if we look at the first 90, which is the second set of bars from the left, significantly fewer 10 to 14 year olds. So um, if you draw your attention to the blue bar at 44.5%, these are 10 to 14 year olds who knew their status and it was much lower than their older counterparts, 73.1% for the 15 to 19 year olds. So if we look at the third set of bars on that graph, which talks to the second 90, Significantly more 10 to 14 year olds, 89.9% were on art versus nearly 58% for 15 to 19 year olds who were on art. And for the third 90, we can see on the far right that there were similar proportions of alive on art were virally suppressed. So we'll then go to the next slide, which also talks to 1990 targets. Thanks, Tabo. Um, but here we show the breakdown by sex. And we show our progress towards the 1990 targets. So we can see similar proportions of um, alive aged 10 to 19 years by sex knowing their status. We have 60.1% of males and nearly 64% of females. 
Art uptake was lower among females at 62% versus nearly 71% for males. However, among alive on art, more females achieved viral load suppression at nearly 83% compared to males at 72%. However, these differences were non-significant. So we then used these um, proportions to calculate the gaps in achieving the 1990 targets for alive. 10 to 19 years by six, which is what is presented there uh, for males and females, males on the left, females on the right. So the blue bars um, show what was achieved and the orange bars point to the gaps. And then we have the targets for each of the 1990s labeled at the top of the bars. So here the gaps in attaining viral load suppression was larger for males at 43% and 40% for female alive. So if we go to the next slide, we then did some analysis on self-reported versus laboratory confirmed art in blood. Now these are with blood samples for the ARVs. And this is among those who reported that they had been tested for HIV and that they were aware of their status. So among these alive, um, nearly 85% reported that they were on art. However, 73.4% actually had ARVs present in their blood. All the alive who had ARVs detected in their blood also self-reported being on art. So among alive for whom ARVs were not detected in their blood, we found nearly 13% said that they were taking art. So this result showed a significant discordance between self-reported art and the presence of ARVs in their blood. So in the next slide, I'll speak to uh, pregnancy in the past 24 months among sexually, sexually active adolescent females aged 15 to 19 years. So 23.1% reported having been pregnant, among whom nearly 42% said they had a pregnancy in the past 24 months. Among adolescent females in school who were pregnant in the past 24 months, 37.7% were alive compared to nearly 13% who were not living with HIV. So in the next slide, um, thanks Tabo, we report six risk behaviors among female adolescents aged 15 to 19 year old by their status for 2017. So just generally in this slide for all risk behaviors, ALIVE showed greater vulnerability than their HIV negative counterparts. So we'll quickly run through this, looking at the behaviors uh, clockwise from the right and comparing ALIVE with their HIV negative counterparts. More female ALIVE reported that they ever had sex so we have around 57% versus 35% female adolescents not living with HIV. Of those who reported ever having sex, more alive reported having sex in the past year and having had sex, first sex prior to the age of 15 years. So early sexual debut was similar for both categories of alive and who are not living with HIV. So we have 14.4% versus nearly 13%. Female alive more commonly reported having two or more sexual partners in the past year. So this talks to the multiple um, sexual partners. 
we had 16.3% versus 12.4% among HIV negative. And for those having a most recent sexual partner who was five or more years older than they were, we had 47.2% among alive versus nearly 33% among HIV negative. And then lastly, regarding condom use, um, the proportion of female alive who used a condom use at last sex was lower than for female adolescents not living with HIV. So it was 48.2% among alive versus nearly 61% among HIV negative. So I've just got a few more slides to go through. And the next one talks to uh, our results for knowledge and myth rejection about, um, about HIV. So here uh, we measured this um, using two questions on HIV prevention, and then um, those who collect correctly rejected myths um, about the disease. Overall, the knowledge and correct rejection of myths about HIV was higher for 15 to 19 year olds versus the 12 to 14 year olds. So these were uh, among the HIV prevention questions, you can see 56% and 40% there and as well as those who correctly rejected the myths um, about HIV. So similar proportions, but higher in the 15 to 19 year olds. So if I can go to the next slide, uh, Tabo, thank you. So here we looked at self-reported HIV testing and disclosure of HIV status among alive aged 15 to 19 years in 2017. Here adolescents were asked whether or not they had tested for HIV in the past 12 months and were aware of their status. So we found among alive that nearly 38% had done so. Now with regards to testing among 15 to 19 year olds, for those who might have been perinatally infected, it is possible that they were aware of their status. Therefore, they might not have had the need to go and get tested by themselves. Um, but obviously they were aware of their status. A higher proportion of female alive knew their status so 51.5% compared to nearly 18% of males. To the far right of recently pregnant alive, over 80% said they knew their status. Now, when asked about disclosing their HIV positive status to their main sexual partners, um, the proportions of females who had disclosed were markedly higher compared to males. So we can see 70, nearly 78% compared to 11.5% among males who had disclosed to their partner. So if I can go to the next slide. Thank you, Tabo. So we then looked at self-rated health among females, age 15 to 19 year olds. And we looked at this in 2012 and 2017. So the red bars are results for 2017 and the blue bars are the results for 2012. So we did see some improvement overall in the self-rated health status among females. To the far right, you can see we asked where do they usually obtain public health care and the results were quite high for using uh, government facilities for seeking health care. So if we move to the bars on the left hand side, we noted some improvement among female alive for self-rated general health and hospitalization. So it went from 12.1% for self-rated health to 6.8% for those who said they had poor health. And hospitalization also went from 13.5% to 8.2%. And among those who were hospitalized for any illness in the past 12 months, we had 13.5% versus 8.2. And sorry, when 
was the last time you went to see a healthcare provider? We had 57.2 versus 48%. So then lastly, um, we speak about psychological distress. Next slide, please, Tabo. So this we assessed for a life age 15 to 19 years for 2012 and 2017. So psychological distress, uh, we measured using a matrix of questions regarding the experiences of anxiety and dis depressive disorders over the past uh, month. And then we categorized these into lower distress and high distress based on a scoring system. So the blue bars shows the distress levels for 2012 and the red bars show the distress for 2017. If we look at the blue bars to the far right hand side, in 2012, there were high levels of psychological distress. So if you look at the 31.2% among HIV positive 15 to 19 year olds versus 16.1% among HIV negative um, 15 to 19 year olds. If we then look at all the red bars for 2017, proportions of low and high distress levels were similar regardless of uh, their HIV st status. So this suggests there are overarching stresses among adolescents aged 15 to 19 year olds. So with that chair, um, thank you very much. Um, that's all from the SAPSIM findings. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Naida, for, for your presentation. Uh, we'll move on to our next speaker, Dr. Rebecca Hoots from uh, University of Cape Town, who will be presenting to us the qualitative aspects related to, to, to the topic. Over to you, Dr. Hoots. Thank you, Prof. Zuma. I've, I've just put my video on to say greetings to everyone, and I'm going to switch it off now as well. Okay. So being alive, what do we know about adolescents living with HIV in South Africa? And this was part of the project, the collaboration between HSRC and the Mzansi Wako team, which has a number of locations academically at the universities of Oxford and UCT. And during the course of the study, we had project offices in both East London and in King Williamstown in the Amatole district and the Buffalo City uh, Metropolitan Municipality in the Eastern Cape. We've quite provocatively titled this component of the research to be adherence misfits, because a lot of what comes with adolescents' non-adherence to ART is the sense of irresponsibility and almost a kind of criminality or, or, or disobedience. So that's the provocative title. And what I'll be presenting to you are the different perspectives on ART defaulting among HIV positive adolescents, caregivers and healthcare workers. So those three very important different components of people who are central to the care and the health and well-being of alive adolescents living with HIV. This is just an overview of the Mzansi Wako study, which ran from 2013 to 2018. I think interesting to note here is that the study began with qualitative research. Um, often that's, that, that either goes hands in hands or is aligned with the beginning or the onset of quantitative work. In order to understand the context and understand the young people we'd be working with, we began with um, a deep ethnography 
of young people and of our participants living in the Eastern Cape. And then for subsequent years, combined a range of research methods, participatory research, that's the purple block. We explored all kinds of different methods of engaging with adolescents on their own terms and using visual media, more performance media. It was crucial for us to want to disseminate our findings, not just blue skies research for research sake. Um, there was a component also of clinical research and we completed the third wave in 2018. If I can just note at the bottom of the slides to say that the first wave, we managed to recruit over 90% of eligible um, adolescents living with HIV. And the total number of, of participants recruited was just over 1,000 with 465 HIV status unknown participants and managed to retain high rates of retention, low rates of attrition. If I could also just state that we overall uh, recorded a rate of 3.4% mortality among our participants over the course of the study. Okay, so the key questions we asked for, for this particular collaboration, which allowed us to really hone in on some of the emerging findings from the qualitative from, from the data set, which, which is so rich and so extensive. And so it was a good opportunity for us to be able to really focus on particular findings and to triangulate and rework those with our colleagues at HSRC. Our key questions were, how do adolescents speak about and understand their own pill-taking practices? How is this different from healthcare workers, caregivers, and policymakers? And how could we better understand adolescents' perspectives to support their health and well-being? Go ahead, Tabo. Okay, colleagues, this is a, a point of um, my presentation where I'd like to ask participants to please get involved. If you'd like to use the chat function, please go ahead. In essence, the question is, who said it? These are all people who are speaking about or describing non-compliance of, of adolescents on their antiretroviral treatment. So in essence, not taking the treatment as they were told to take it by healthcare workers or caregivers. Let me invite colleagues to chat in the chat box, or if that's, if that's not desired, I'm gonna give you some clues. Taking a break, Mpumi has shared here, alive, correct. The adolescents themselves spoke of ex explanations and descriptions like taking a break, being naughty, Certainly a healthcare worker or perhaps an adult caregiver. Defaulting a healthcare worker, correct again and for me, and part-timing an adolescent, an adolescent. Thank you, colleagues. So that's just to give you a snapshot of how different our different agents and different participants would use shorthand to describe this particular uh, behavior, which is what is often medically referred to as non-adherence or non-compliance with medicines. Different, different kinds of people and participants had very different ways of describing that behavior. Next slide, please, Tabo. Okay, so I'd like to talk you through some health workers' perspectives. 
I think um, I've, I've filtered out our colleague's face, but you can see that she's doing something extremely familiar to all colleagues of healthcare workers working in facilities. She's writing out a register. If I could just note that this facility had 37 different registers. They had a register to keep track of the registers. So part of capturing this data and ensuring that it complies with monitoring and evaluation uh, commitments and contracts is a very substantial part of what healthcare workers are doing. And it can really sap resources, um, taking away their time from doing the job of actually consulting and treating and supporting patients. Healthcare workers, a lot of the healthcare workers that we worked with were, were healthcare workers who'd had experience of treating the HIV epidemic before public access to antiretroviral treatment. So they had endured what it was like to lose patients in what we call the era of mass deaths from AIDS in South Africa in the late 1990s, potentially the early 2000s. The rollouts, the national rollout for ART, of course, began in 2005. So nurses were delighted and uplifted by, by public access to ART and were then conversely very, very down and disappointed when their HIV positive patients didn't take treatment as it was prescribed. They had really staunch hopes that once the pills were available, that patients would comply with them. And when patients did not, particularly young people with their whole lives ahead of them, they became very frustrated and often quite helpless and also sometimes quite angry because they would have to ultimately bear the brunt of when young people with viral rebound return to their facilities with opportunistic infections. So they often felt a sense of frustration, anger, powerless, powerlessness, and they had developed what we called the comply or die ultimatum with very little time for treatment counseling. Often nurses would say to their adolescent patients, this is the ultimatum, either you comply to these drugs or you will die. And that messaging had very different kinds of impacts on adolescent patients and often quite negative impacts. Next slide, please, Tabo. So these are the kinds of comments that we, that we had from nurses. A sense of frustration. These teenagers, they're a big problem. They're in a big mess. We don't know why they default whilst they default. We don't know how to stop this defaulting business. We sit with piles and piles and piles of cards with patients who have defaulted. Next slide, please. Okay, then not just sitting back and taking this, of course, healthcare workers came up with an, a plethora of novel dynamic strategies for retaining adolescents within care. They did all kinds of things. Everything that you can imagine is what healthcare workers try to do. They would often refer patients to external sources for monitoring and supports, educate patients, often adolescents themselves because they were in school, were not able to attend clinic appointments. And so we speak of proxy patients. Their, their caregivers would attend on their behalf and speak to adults, uh, speak to uh, healthcare workers about uh, adherence behaviors. 
and healthcare workers would try to educate these proxy patients, educate the patients themselves, give them counseling on the biomechanics of HIV and about the workings of antiretroviral treatment, attempting to remove structural barriers like addressing matters like poverty, um, improving access to social grants, then rewards, punishments, shouting, thre threats to speak to the police, threats to report, contracts I'll get to shortly, incentives to promote adherence. So encouragement, support, motivation, looking for how to treat and really egg adolescents on rewarding their good compliance and um, praise and shame. So either, either a lot of support and praise and yeah, get, uh, acknowledging good compliance, but also putting adolescents down for bad compliance. Next, next slide, please. So here, colleagues, I wonder if others are familiar with these kinds of images. You can see I've been fastidious about, about anonymizing uh, the identifying factors. These kinds of patient pledges were quite common looking in uh, the patient data sets and, and I find them profoundly interesting. When adolescents are initiated onto ARC, and of course this has changed as we've changed from various options, option A, option B, option B plus, healthcare facilities, and this differed between facilities, tried every means possible to kind of formalize ARC initiation with losing things like the body system, with moving to test and treat, um, you know, healthcare workers and facilities did what they could to formalize this process. And this says ARV consent form, but what it actually is, is a patient pledge to say that I understand and promise to fully adhere and commit myself to the treatment given to me for all of the days of my life. So a, a serious commitment and a means of healthcare workers to convey to patients the seriousness of this and to try to commit them to be retained in care through the means of a contract. Next slide, please. Okay, caregivers' perspectives, everyone. We spoke to many, many health, uh, adult caregivers. Many of them were grandparents or, uh, or, or um, great aunts and uncles. As Inba has spoken to earlier, uh, we saw quite substantial rates of orphanhood declining um, in line with the efficacy of the ARC rollout in recent years, but many of the adolescents in our study were either paternal or maternal orphans or double orphans, and caregive caregivers were themselves quite frustrated. He doesn't listen, he wants to be reminded all the time, he will come back at night and realize that he forgot to take his pills, he forgets a lot, but it's better now he is forced after he has defaulted. So once it was established that these young youngsters had defaulted, there were often more coercive measures, more oversight, surveillance of their treatment taking, and that became extremely difficult as youngsters. You can see this participant was 14, but as he would have aged out and maybe, you know, asserted a greater sense of autonomy, perhaps moved out of home, that kind of oversight would have become increasingly difficult. Another caregiver explains, I have to be honest, she really likes the streets. If she has gone out, she comes back after we have long gone to sleep. I shout at her all the time. She does have an element of being naughty and the word she used there was stoat. She does not want to be corrected. Next slide, please. Now we have the adolescents aspirations and explanations. Tabo, my colleague, please let me know if I'm running really over time on time. 
Noted. Thank you. It was especially interesting us, for, for us as researchers through passing a very extensive qualitative data set. This was more than 2000 hours of observations, interviews and focus groups with young people living with HIV. In all of our interviews and focus groups and in all of our conversations, not a single adolescent used the term defaulting or non-compliance when they were describing their medicines taking practices. Also, they wanted to appear adherent. So of course, strong social desirability bias, even if they were not taking their pills, they wanted to avoid stigmatization and punishment, and they wanted to appear well-behaved. Don't we all want to appear well-behaved, good, moral, responsible people? That's our goal. We don't want to appear to be bringing shame on our families, being irresponsible, reckless, and risky people. When we were able to invite and I don't want to say capture, uh, but um, document admissions of imperfect adherence, often they were accidental. Um, so an adolescent might explain how she would take ART one way in an interview and in the self-same interview then speak of another way that she would be taking her, her medicine. So, so different accounts of, of medical taking within one and the self-same appointment. Multiple engagement being asked in different ways, being asked in relation to other life challenges, so structural, socio-structural conditions and difficulties like transport or stockouts, wishing to be normal and what that might mean for adolescents. And then the words that they used were things like taking a break or part-timing, distancing themselves from non-adherence, and if they were describing good admission, good compliance, they would often contrast that to past bad behaviors, whereas they would report current good ones. And they would also use friends as proxies. So speak about you know, friends or other family members that struggled with adherence rather than claiming that as an individual challenge. Next slide, please. In the report, colleagues, we have three in-depth cases of adolescents living with HIV who speak in detail about the challenges that they faced. Um, that they're sick and tired of taking pills. Um, the case of Chlechle, 14 years old, was worried. Issues and fears of side effects were especially prescient. She worried that her body actually began to stink like ARVs and that was a, a means of disclosing that other people could tell that she was on the medicines by the way that her body smelled. So there's a, a real policy recommendation for greater treatment literacy and for us to do more research and gather greater understandings about issues of side effects and how young people feel and believe that their status is being disclosed to merely on the basis of adhering to their medicines. Next slide, please. The case of Sandra, a 17-year-old girl living in Duncan Village. Uh, we have a picture of her, her um, in this, in this um, image. She would speak of the free zone, which is, of course, what many adolescents want. Maybe not so much the introverts, but the ambiverts and the extroverts. She would go visit her, her cousin who had, a, who had a house who was just down the road, which they nicknamed the free zone. And when they were there, they were 17. So, of course, they're moving away from being constantly surveilled and watched by adults. They're young adults themselves, mixing with young adults. And when she was spending time in that 
free zone without the oversight of adults and, and other kinds of authorities. That was especially when she would default from her medicines. She would often stay there for a couple of days over the weekend, um, wanting to exercise greater freedom and autonomy. And um, that meant that she wasn't going home to fetch her medicines and, and remember them and re remember to take them. So it was part of her becoming an adult and, and taking greater freedoms. So what is at the core of non-adherence for adolescents living with HIV? Beyond what they say, how do they understand? In some ways, the matter here was that adolescents didn't want to confront their imperfect medicines taking and the possible negative consequences, including of death, right? So there was a sense there of denial. Also resistance to the confessional imperative. Adolescents were often opposed to being forced to disclose their HIV status and Inba shared some fascinating data from SABSIM, which showed that HIV positive adolescents had lower rates of condom use reported during last sexual encounter than HIV negative um, adolescents. So there's a very interesting story to be told there about social capital and about how HIV positive adolescents feel tainted or feel stigmatized or even self-stigmatized about their status. Also, you know, risk-taking rebellion, challenging authority, being bored and frustrated by being instructed by nurses, healthcare workers, by adult authorities, older relatives, beginning to, to bristle against those kinds of instructions, a desire to feel normal, a desire to have one's life proceed normally and not to be perpetually interrupted. So treatment fatigue, and also adolescents wanting medicines, medicines taking and living with HIV only to be one part of their lives, not to subsume and become the primary notion and the primary facet of their identities. Thank you very much colleagues for listening to me and I'm looking forward to any other questions or engagements. I'll hand over now to other colleagues. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Hoots. And uh, now uh, our next presenter is uh, Alicia North. Uh, who is a research specialist uh, within HSRC, uh, who will be speaking to us on issue on the desktop review that uh, that was done. Uh, over to you, Alicia. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Prof. Zuma, and to our previous um, speakers. Um, I will pre be presenting an overview of the desktop review on, on behalf of the larger team. I am going to turn my Next slide, please, Tabo. As for the flow of the presentation, I'll be taking you through the aims and objectives of the desktop review, as well as the various factors influencing risk for our life, the gaps, um, and, and a conclusion. Next slide, please, Tabo. This, the objectives specific to the desktop review was to explore HIV risk factors in relation to adolescents living with HIV and also identifying concerns and gaps that are relevant to programs for ALIVE. So who are ALIVE? I do think we can all appreciate that life's major changes are experienced during adolescence, such as academic pressure, gaining independence from parents, establishing intimate relationships with peers, physical maturation, as well as expectations placed on adolescents by family, as well as society. 
These experiences are accompanied by drastic increases in the frequency at which stressful events occur. However, at the core of every young person is resilience, and they are more adaptable than we think. They are capable of navigating their own path. And this applies to all adolescents. However, for alive, there are specific challenges that they experience. In order to provide support in assisting and empowering alive, intervention plays a critical role. This presentation highlights the challenges that alive experiences and the gaps that need urgent attention. Next slide, please, Tabo. So for HIV transmission and disclosure, not all cases of infant HIV are detected as children are not routinely tested. And some children living with HIV are not diagnosed until the point where illness manifests. Risk of HIV acquisition is linked mainly to biological and physiological factors. With regards to disclosure, it is beneficial to children and adolescents when they know their status, as it has been shown to assist in acceptance of medical care as well as treatment. However, parents and guardians have numerous fears when it comes to disclosing the children's status, fears such as stigma and discrimination, and not only from the community, but from family members as well. Next slide, please, Tabo. So live key populations. UNAIDS defines key populations as population subgroups that have specific high risk behaviors, irrespective of epidemic type or local context, where barriers may hinder their full participation in society on an equal basis with others. HIV programs need to be tailored to a live living with disabilities so that they have HIV information, treatment and services that are accessible to them. With regard to key populations such as LGBTQI+, challenges of living with HIV exacerbates social isolation, stigma, and oppressing of associated sexual orientation. Next slide, please, Tabo. According to the latest antenatal data for girls 15 to 19 years, 100,000 girls gave birth in 2017, and just under 40% were aware of their HIV positive status. Prevention of mother to child uptake among adolescent mothers were found to be three times lower than adult mothers and were at increased risk of mother to child transmission. Next slide, please. With regards to the 1990-90 cascade, most countries have adopted the treat all approach, which focuses on early initiation of treatment, following diagnosis, and then sustaining ART to achieve viral load suppression. Compared to other people living with HIV age categories, alive levels of care are still not on par. There is a desperate need for friendly, and approachable healthcare services, especially skills for assisting healthcare workers supporting alive on treatment. In South Africa, 
and we all are well aware um, that HIV-related knowledge among adolescents are low and decreasing, as presented by Dr. Naidu earlier, with reference to SAPSIM data. The risks of acquiring STIs are considered to be high among adolescents, including ALIVE, as a product of early sexual debut, unprotected sex, lack of access to condoms, misassessment of personal risks, having multiple sexual partners, engaging in substance use, and substantially older sexual partners. With regards to mental health among alive, high levels of psychological distress were reported for the age group 15 to 19 from SAPSIM data 2012. Suicide rates are substantially high among adolescents and high levels of depression, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder was found among 14 to 15 year old school attendees in a study that was conducted in Cape Town. It was also found that psychological distress symptoms were more commonly reported among alive orphaned by AIDS compared to HIV negative or non-orphaned children. The substance use, it does place um, alive at elevated risk, leading to unsafe sex as well as poor adherence to ART. Health information, screening, and drug education programs are essential in order to assist alive with coping with stress they experience. Next slide, please, Tabo. South Africa is placed among the most violent countries in the world, and according to Safer Spaces, has one of the highest rates of rape. In a report by the South African Police 2018, it showed that there has been an increase of violence against children, which is associated with increased risk of infection. And at a population level, interventions that address the underpinning societal gender norms that perpetuate IPV against women and girls are critically needed. With regards to the gaps that our review had highlighted, currently much focus has been placed on the 1990-90 cascade. For alive, much broader services are needed, which includes mental health, social support, social security, education and training, as well as assistance in finding employment. In tailoring interventions according to a gendered response, it will allow adolescents to reflect their particular identity issues attached to their gender. For key populations, as well as young pregnant women encountering various obstacles, this needs to be addressed, especially with regards to access, treatment and adherence to ART. Next slide, please. And in closing, a more holistic approach needs to be implemented in order to ensure that alive live a full and normal life. A participatory or at the minimum a consultative approach to service provision and health research is needed. Thank you. I'll hand over to Dr. Sungu. Thank you, thank you so much, um, uh, Alicia. Uh, now, our next presenter is uh, Dr. Zungu, uh, a research director within HSRC, who will be speaking to us on uh, summarizing the, the, the work that has been done 
and talking about recommendations and then the methods of how this work was done. Over to you, Dr. Zulu. You, you are muted, Mbumi. Oh, I've done what I was trying to avoid <laughs> before I unmute. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Zuma and the colleagues that have presented before me. I'm just showing my face and then I'm going to start the presentation. As uh, Professor Zuma has indicated, my focus will really try to summarize what has been uh, shared by the colleagues, very rich data. And I think um, it's exciting to be able to bring you know, different methodologies together and have such a rich document. And that is what we set ourselves to do with the colleagues from the, from the UCT who have been doing some of this work around um, adolescent living with HIV and being able to go and mine um, our data sets from 2002, although we focused on 2005, has been something that um, the, the team has looked forward to, and uh, we are really proud to be able to present this work. So just to summarize, I'm starting from the findings that were presented by Dr. Naidu, who was able to give us a picture about the profile of adolescent living with HIV. So what is it that we know about ALIVE? We know that 3.7% of adolescents um, in South Africa are living with HIV. We know that the majority of these happen to be African and they are aged between 15 and 19 years and they are adolescent girls and they live in KwaZulu-Natal. We also know that HIV prevalence among adolescent male increased between 2012 and 2017, something that is of concern as we look at the next NSP and other interventions that as a country we plan to implement. We also found out that 62% uh, of HIV positive adolescents aged between 10 and 19 years knew their HIV status. And among those, um, only 65.4% were on art and those on art, 78% were virally suppressed. Next slide, uh, Tabo. She also presented data on risk factors. And there we began to see the bad news, I guess, that have continued in some of the data that we have uh, presented. We now know that um, adolescents living with HIV have higher levels of risky sexual behavior. We know that a higher proportion of them have had sex. The number was 57%. And we also noted lower levels of condom use, something that Rebecca also commented on. We also see that in 2017, 21.3% of adolescent females reported that they had been pregnant in the last 24 months. And among these 41.5% 41, uh, were alive. The two risk factors that we all always focus on, that is multiple sexual partnerships and age disparate sex. We also found that these um, relationships were higher among adolescents living with uh, HIV. Next slide, uh, Tabo. 
data on schooling and employment gave us a glimpse of what happens at a school level. And there's been a lot of talk and studies around the need to keep especially young women at school longer. So education is a very key indicator that we have to track and ensure that our young people stay longer at school and they complete school. So what we know, which is a positive news, is that the majority of adolescents age 15 and 19 were at school. That is a good thing. We also know that a higher proportion uh, of uh, alive were not con uh, attending school when you compare them with the uh, HIV negative counterparts. And to be specific, about 24.8% uh, of females uh, alive age 15 and 19 were not attending school, something that should concern us. Among the, those that were not at school, we also saw that 92, 19% uh, had not completed uh, grade 12 um, and only 5.6 had completed grade 12. And if you move and look at the data for employment, so what has happened to those that are not at school? We also saw that almost all males, uh, all females um, and all males um, were not employed among those that were not at school. And if you look at, their, at the uh, um, HIV negative counterparts, we find that 74, 7.4% of males and 5.1% of females uh, were employed among those that are not uh, living with uh, HIV. Next slide. Then we had my colleague, um, Rebecca, Dr. Hoods, who presented data on Mzansiwako, very rich data. There is no way of doing it justice if I have to really summarize it. She highlighted perspectives from different actors and actors with the inverted commas, parents and guardians, healthcare workers, and also alive themselves. And in my reflection, I felt that I would want to focus on the alive and their, and their perspective. I think it was interesting that the word, the word or term adherence or defaulting did not exist or it's not a term that is used commonly by um, alive. And the data also I mean, brought home that one has to look at non-adherence in context. You cannot separate it from the context where it, 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 it occurs. And that pill taking itself is a reminder for a person taking them that they are different from their families and also peers. And that pill taking is framed within other priorities. And these are priorities that surround being a young person, being free and worries about the impact of art on one's body and also development. Next slide, uh, Tabo. Then the last presenter, um, um, Alicia, who presented um, data that was coming from the desktop, which we did to really understand what is happening, what is out there in terms of data on Alive. She highlighted the complexities that adolescents face when they have to make decisions around HIV and their own health. Challenges that were identified include both developmental and also context contextual factors 
that one would need to address in order to uh, make a difference in this population. The review also focused on the current uh, points of entry to health and care and healthcare delivery and groups adolescents that we are missing. Um, yeah. And here we're talking about orphans, pregnant, alive, adolescent boys and adolescents who belong to the LGBTQI communities. We confirmed from this um, review that there is a need to focus again on prevention. I think the data on condom use, the data on multiple sexual partnership, intergenerational sex is something that we need to focus on. The number of young people that are on art, because we understand that art is not only about treatment, but it's also about prevention. So there is a need for us to refocus and uh, provide positive prevention. And lastly, I think when all the data is put together, we recognize that there is a need um, for adolescents as we intervene and do all the things that we want to do to make lives of adolescents more productive and positive is that we need to understand that they need to lead a full and normal life while inter facing with healthcare. Now to recommendations, next slide, Tabo. Um, our recommendations, I mean, are longer than what I'm able to present here. And in the interest of time, I just brought key ones. The rest will be in our report, which we are still finalizing and uh, we will make it available as soon as possible. And finalizing, I mean, the printing stage, not the writing stage. Um, I think there's a need to implement school-based intervention. Among, if we looked at the interventions that are out there, I think we are missing an opportunity by not using schools as a point of care where we provide information on understanding of HIV, its transmission and the efficacy of art. Again, the point that I made as treatment and also as prevention. There's also a need to broaden the concept of healthcare for our life. We need to move beyond the 1990 treatment cascade and that framework where we just look um, and, uh, uh, at the biomarkers and, and all the, 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 the three factors that we look at, the testing, uh, being enrolled and also viral suppressed. They are very important, but our life also needs support. We need to make sure that in our package, we look at mental health, social support, social security, education, and sexual reproductive health, psychosocial training, and help for young people to find employment. Because if you are already vulnerable and living with HIV and you still then get to a point where you, are, you, 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 you don't um, get employment, that increases your vulnerability as a young uh, adult that is over the age of 19. We should also implement prevention programs for adolescent mothers living with HIV. I think a lot has been written and especially the team from Zanziwako is doing a lot of work around adolescent mothers living with HIV, issues of stigma and an attitude that they face. So we need to have programs that provide reproductive health, contraception, and also look at safer sex. A lot was said about healthcare workers. 
Um, and most of it very positive. I think the role of healthcare workers cannot uh, uh, be de-emphasized in how we are presenting this data and talking about them. But having said that, I think there is a need to provide support to healthcare workers. And this support would look at uh, assessing their knowledge, personal views, attitudes, and behavior to improve their responses to the needs of adolescents living with HIV. We need holistic approaches. Our speaker who opened the, the session talked about holistic approaches for programming for all adolescents, especially looking at, the, at gender um, issues. I don't think we are doing enough in that area and we need to do that because it also talks to socialization, which I'll talk to a little bit later. We also need to uh, develop strategies and programs to support a life at school and those that are not at school. This was identified as a gap area. We need to implement multi-sectoral interventions to prevent a life from dropping out of school. And when they leave school, we need to provide coaching, support, and help to find employment. We also need to train our educators and others in the school system to provide supportive environments for our life. Having said that, we know that not all schools are resourced. So we also will need to look at schools and how we resource them with school health nurses and counselors to support educators as they do the work. We need to address HIV related stigmas in all settings through targeted programs for reduction of stigma. We need to develop family and community interventions that incorporate family counseling, training in parental skills and stigma reduction interventions. I don't think we do enough in the family. We might have a few interventions, but I don't think we focus a lot on how parents and guardians can support a life. We also need to address issues of how we socialize young males and females differently within the South African context and develop specific interventions that are age appropriate, especially for the groups that we are talking about. And lastly, we did things a bit upside down and we did it deliberately because we wanted you, while you had, we had all your concentration to listen to our results and then we end by talking about the methods. So this was a mixed method study. We used an approach where we had three different components and the, the first component used existing data set at the HSRC of our HIV um, prevalence survey that has been conducted from 2002, but we only used uh, the data set from 2005 to 2017. And you had uh, uh, Dr. Hoods present about Mzansiwako. We also used their longitudinal study uh, data set on medicines taking and sexual health among alive. And lastly, um, Alicia presented a literature review, which helped to contextualize what we have been doing. Obviously, the lens was sub-Saharan Africa, but the emphasis was really on South Africa. 
Next slide. I just want to acknowledge the team members, although we are the face today presenting, but there are a lot of colleagues behind us. And I will ask that that slide, if possible, be left up uh, once I have finished with the presentation. And uh, this team was led uh, by myself, Professor Kangelani Zuma, Emberani Naidu was a copy I, and from UCT, the copy I was Dr. Rebecca Hoods. We thank everyone for having participated. I would also like to thank the MRC for funding the, 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 the study, UNFPA for funding the disseminating part of this work. We are wanting to use this work for advocacy, for education, and see how it can inform policy programming and also research because there are other emerging research from this work. So I want to thank my colleagues, all of them, and for giving us the opportunity to represent them. And I hope you've represented them very well. I want to thank everyone who has attended this session, everyone who's made it possible running around um, to pull everything together, our team from the HSRC, and remind everybody about the World AIDS Day and also indicate that among the next events that we are planning is to have a youth dialogue where we have young people engaging with these findings and we are planning to have it as part of the DSI um, um, scientific forum that is coming up, but we will be communicating very soon. And we've been funded to be able to do things like fact sheets and so on which is what will then uh, be the next step in terms of reducing this data to um, um, something that can be digested easily by not only researchers, but also policymakers and young people themselves. I thank you very much, colleagues. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Zungu. Um, uh, now we move on to our discussions. Uh, the first of our two discussions uh, will be speaking to us on social impact bond and adolescent girls and young women intervention perspective will be Dr. Farid Abdullah from uh, South African Medical Research Council. Uh, over to you, Dr. Abdullah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, Prof Zuma, I, I tried to put my uh, video on for a second, but uh, doesn't allow me to do that. Um, okay, there we go. Okay. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, I'll be brief and to the point, just to, to say how pleased I am to see that uh, Coqueto uh, is representing SANAC. It's a, it's a big, big uh, program within SANAC and SANAC has an important role to play with adolescent health and, and HIV in particular. Uh, thanks also to, uh, to both of you, Dr. Zungu and Prof. Zuma for doing this important work. And thanks to the Department of Science and Innovation, especially uh, Claudina Lewitz, who has been very supportive of this uh, program and our own team at the MRC, who I'm happy to say have joined this call, uh, Neveline Slingers and, and Liva. So really, I've got four or five points to make. The first is that we've always known that the rates are high uh, when it comes to HIV in adolescence, but we've not 
properly document or quantify the extent of the problem. And, you know, this is what this study does. I, I mean, um, if you look at some of the, the key findings from, from the prevalence survey, they, they are quite staggering, you know, uh, that we have 360,000 adolescents who are living with HIV. That's a staggering statistic. Um, 5% prevalence in 15 to 19 year old adolescent girls is, is, a, is a high number. But what, what was most staggering for me is that 21% that of all adolescents living with HIV in the world reside in, in South Africa. Um, I think what was also really uh, important to document properly is the uh, relatively poorer performance of the antiretroviral treatment program in adolescents, boys and girls, uh, compared to the general population. Because as a country, you know, we are quite proud of the progress we've made with antiretroviral therapy, with uh, almost 5 million people on treatment, which is about 70% of those who need it. Um, but the numbers amongst adolescents and adolescent girls in particular don't match up to that success. And this is a, a major concern. So, so it, you know, we have less than 50% of adolescents uh, 15 to 19 years age who are on antiretroviral treatment. And that's a much lower uh, achievement than the general adult population. Um, and, and only one third are virally suppressed, which is why we have a, a high mortality and morbidity. And you can see in the Mzanzi Wako qualitative work, um, you know, often, uh, uh, often a sign of not, not being on treatment or not being adherent to treatment or taking pills regularly is a, a visit to the hospital with a, a serious um, opportunistic infection like tuberculosis. I mean, we saw in the quantitative work that 8% of, of adolescents reported a hospital admission uh, in the last 12 months. Those are, those are very high statistics for hospital admissions in the, in the population. And, and young people of this age should not be anywhere near a hospital. They are known to be the group that, you know, have the lowest morbidity and mortality from infectious and non-communicable diseases. And, and, you know, perhaps we're starting to get very used to, to these numbers when, when actually they are off the charts. You know? um, now, the ART statistics recorded here are, are quite important. And I'm happy to say that as part of the social impact bond project, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a moment, we've commissioned a number of studies. This study is, is one of about uh, 13 projects, uh, which will lead to something like 70 publications across adolescent girls and young women and, and HIV and reproductive health. So we're really building up a body of knowledge to help us to program better um, but, uh, you know, the Her Story study, which looked at six global fund districts, also showed that antiretroviral treatment coverage was around 45 to 46% in adolescent girls and young women aged 15 to 19. 
Um, so clearly we have a big problem in this area. With regard to adolescence, disclosure is a problem. And I'm sure that you all noticed that, that more than 40% of, of, of adolescents who have HIV, who are living with HIV, have never had sex. This means that they are carrying their, their infection over from, from being born with it. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a really special problem to be able to disclose to a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old that they've been taking pills for all these years and they don't know why they're taking these pills. They've been told all sorts of, of different stories and um, uh, sort of a thoughtless disclosure to say, oh, but you have HIV, that's why you're taking these pills, is a major crisis for an adolescent. And, you know, there are special guidelines for disclosing to adolescents and and only three or four places in the country have the expertise to, to disclose to adolescents. You know, there's a very good clinic um, in Hillbrow, which does this, uh, a couple in the Cape. Uh, I'm myself, I'm a still a practicing clinician, and I see adolescents uh, with HIV who, who don't know why they're taking these pills. Um, but this requires a special effort, and given the numbers, you know, we should be having these services in all the major centers in the country, uh, if not all the clinics in the country that are providing ART. I think what's really also quite instructive from the qualitative work is how, how much transport costs are a barrier uh, to, uh, to uh, adolescents going to their clinics for their visits. Um, and, and, and then we, we kind of wonder why it's so complicated for them to take their pills and to stay on treatment and why they, they lost a follow-up. Um, so treatment is a big issue here uh, uh, and, and needs a multiple sets of interventions. Uh, when it comes to HIV incidence, you'll notice that HIV incidence rates are coming down in all population groups, um, except in the 15 to 19 year old group. For young women, where the data are more stable, um, there's clearly not been a decline from 2012 to 2017. That's really out of kilter with, with what's happening in all other population groups. There is a, there's a rise in incidence in, in males 15 to 19, but you know I think we need one more data point to see if that's a trend or if that's just a, a, you know, a, a measurement issue. Uh, either in the 2012 survey or in the 2017 survey. But in the adolescent girls 15 to 19, you can see there's a, a minor decline from 2005, but it's still around the four to six, uh, you know, uh, percent incidence rate, which is extremely high for 15 to 19 year olds. Um, now, PrEP has been available for more than five years and certainly it's now part of the policy of the government for at least the last two years. But there's very little prep reaching these young women. So that's something to give some serious thought to. Um, I'm coming to, to a close just to say that in addition to the HIV findings with regard to those already infected and the newly infected, or if you want, with regard to prevalence and incidence rates, um, there's some other important findings <clears throat> related to reproductive health. Uh, 
I mean, the fact that we have 100,000 births in, in 15 to 19 year olds in, in South Africa is, you know, is a national crisis. And we keep talking about the statistics, but, but we need to do much more to address this issue. These are life-changing experiences for young women. And, and 100,000 births, you know, it's just a staggering statistic once again. Uh, now, coming to our responses, um, you know, SANAC very, uh, did the right thing in 2016, working with the National Department of Health and other government departments to, to launch the She Conquers program in 2016. And it's, it's kind of gained momentum over time. And then we've had the Dreams Project and the Global Fund Project, which has really helped to scale it up. Um, but, you know, we think that there are issues with regard to achieving the results that we need to and focusing um, a little more on the metrics in a precise way. And that leads us to the Social Impact Bond. And the Social Impact Bond is really an, a new way of financing um, health programs and at the MRC together with the Department of Science and Technology and, and the Treasury we are trying to put together a social impact bond for adolescent girls and young women and, and briefly what it means is that instead of government paying up front for these services we find a private investor who will then invest in the program and if the program is successful meaning it achieves its outcomes then the investor is repaid the investment and could even make a small return on investment. So using uh, debt financing or equity financing um, to fund a difficult social program. And it's part of a broader move within the private sector to fund uh, socially relevant programs. But in order for this to be successful, you need good data. And this is what this study helps us to, to, uh, to achieve good data for what's going on in the baseline, but then also setting targets and being able to, to monitor it. In, in the social impact bond that we're putting together, we have four outcomes. One is to reduce HIV incidence through PrEP. Secondly, to increase antiretroviral treatment initiation, uh, to take it up to the uh, level of the adult population. Uh, thirdly, to increase contraception to address that big problem of unintended pregnancies in 15 to 19 year olds through contraception. And uh, fourthly, early antenatal care, because these young women are getting pregnant, but um, one third of them do not attend antenatal clinics before they are 20 weeks pregnant. That's a huge problem for maternal health and it needs to be addressed to it. So I'll stop there just to say, Thank you once again, as part of putting together all these new programs of which we hope the Social Impact Bond will be yet another attempt to address this long-standing problem in South Africa. Um, it, none of it can be done without the good work of researchers uh, who are doing studies like this uh, so that we can get uh, our, our responses are data-driven and, and not just what, what we all think sitting in a committee room is good, you know. So I'll stop there, Professor Kangelani Zuma, and, and thank the whole team once again, both from HSRC and UCT, and uh, looking forward to, um, to your comments on what I've said. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Dr. Abdullah. And indeed, uh, thanks a lot again for the continued support that you've provided to, to, this, to this work. Now, uh, our next uh, discussant will be speaking to us on relevance for planning, programming, and policy will be uh, Precious Mahapodi from uh, UNFPA. Over to you, uh, Precious. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Kangelani, and um, thank you to HSRC for uh, really, uh, uh, really presenting us with such uh, rich data. Uh, okay, uh, I'm trying to put on my video. Okay, there. Okay. This certainly does provide us with very good insights in terms of uh, what my uh, role is here is really on looking at what this means in terms of um, relevance for planning, programming, and policy. Um, I think where we need to start maybe is looking at the global context uh, where we are. Uh, HIV remains uh, one of the top causes of death among adolescents globally. And uh, the data has already been presented in terms of how it really looks for adolescents between the ages of 10 to 19. And uh, if we look at um, adolescents aged 15 to 19 and young adults as well aged between 20 to 24, they account for about 33% of all new infections with girls in Eastern and Southern Africa disproportionately affected. It is estimated that 21 million adolescent girls become pregnant every year in developing regions and 23 million who want to avoid pregnancy are not even using contraception. In Sub-Saharan Africa, more than 50% of rural adolescent girls and young women aged 15 to 24 years of age have been pregnant before their 18th birthday. So these are presenting really uh, concerning statistics in terms of where we sit with the problem in, in, in our country as well, and being one of the highest uh, countries uh, with um, uh, infection rates and uh, prevalence rates on HIV. Now, turning on to uh, the legislative and policy framework, South Africa is one of the most progressive, as we all know, in terms of legislative and policy framework. Um, where we have uh, problems is we have always encountered implementation of the policies that we have developed. At the highest level of legislation, we have the National Health Act, uh, which really provides a framework for a structured uniform health system, which is really inclusive for all um, population groups. We look at the National Development Plan and Vision 2020 and look at Goal 7, which stipulates universal access to sexual and reproductive health care services, including family planning, information and education and the integration of rep reproductive health into national strategies. We have various other policies that have been developed through the different mandates of the uh, Department of Health, 
the Department of uh, Social Development and Department of Basic Education that really frame or create an enabling environment for uh, provision of services and really general, pro general programming around uh, the health outcomes for, adolescent, uh, uh, for adolescents in, 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 in the country. There we have also the National Strategic Plan on HIV and TB and STIs, uh, which is currently coming under review. And these uh, insights from, the, from, from this research, from this study, are really providing us with great um, uh, uh, insights into, in terms of what needs to be looked at and where are we not doing it right. Uh, at, uh, we also have programs that have been uh, also uh, uh, mentioned by Dr. Farid. We had the She Conquers campaign, and uh, which now is uh, had its evaluation and looking at its uh, impact and what, how has it really impacted, and has it really been inclusive of um, uh, adolescents and young people? Has it achieved its objectives? And what are we learning from campaigns such as that? And there is also uh, planning for a follow-on campaign that is taking recommendations that are coming from the evaluation of, of, of the G-Conquest campaign, which provides further context then for looking at um, also including and being more specific on the needs and priorities of adolescents living with HIV. At a broader level, South Africa is a core signatory as well to the East and Southern Africa uh, commitment, the ISA commitment, which uh, looks, which 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 really uh, looks at uh, the sexual and reproductive health and rights of adolescents and young people in the region and the challenges that they are faced with. Uh, which include unintended, unintended pregnancies, HIV, sexually transmitted infections, gender-based violence, child marriage, discrimination, and low access to quality-friendly health services, and which could also undermine uh, education opportunities, especially for girls, and affect uh, future health and uh, opportunities that are there. So these are really the, the, the framework and the, the environment at a legislative and policy level that sets um, the ground for programming in, in, and planning, rather starting with planning and then programming for uh, that is targeted and tailored for the needs of, of, of adolescents living with um, HIV. When we come to relevance for planning, I want to maybe emphasize the two questions that we need to be uh, cognizant of coming from the, uh, the research as it has been provided here. It's the first one being to, to what extent are the interests, the voices and priorities of adolescents and young people taken into consideration in planning and implementation of the interventions? And also the second question, looking at what are the approaches that are employed to reach adolescents uh, living with HIV. Clearly, what we are seeing from what has been presented is that we need to have a in planning an understanding of the complexities that adolescents face at this developmental stage. 
Uh, it has been uh, acknowledged in the research and also the, some of the findings are looking at, you know, that constant uh, edge or, or, or rather uh, that need at this stage for autonomy, for independence, for, 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 fit, for fitting in. And when you are finding yourself as an adolescent living with HIV, you know, having to be on treatment every day and what it requires, the adherence can uh, really become a frustrating um, uh, issue for, for a young person. So when we do planning, we need to really look at what are the needs of, uh, uh, what is this developmental stage telling us and how, what do we learn from it and how do we tailor make uh, interventions uh, looking at uh, this stage. Uh, what we also need to consider in the planning is that adolescents living with HIV are not a homogeneous group. We are talking about 10, uh, 10 to, there are two groups, 10 to 14 years, and then the 15 to 19 years uh, cohorts. It is very concerning that we have 10 to 14 years uh, cohort uh, that um, there are many gaps in terms of uh, understanding the needs and what needs, what kind of interventions are needed for this cohort. A lot of issues uh, come up when you are looking at planning for this because it's more as well legal issues in terms of uh, at what point uh, is, uh, is the young person infected? Is it from birth? Or if it's at uh, the stage where you know they were infected while um, they were already born, then there are issues that we need to consider and say, what are the things, what are the protective factors that we are uh, providing and what are the follow-ons for providing um, this protective and prevention uh, strategies for this cohort of 10 to 14 years. Um, prevention strategies need to start early on, which what this is what the research is telling us that you know, if you look at 10 to 14, we usually, most programs are starting uh, plans uh, at beginning at 15, interventions are targeting 15 to 19 year olds. But this cohort, there is a serious gap that we are realizing and we need to start looking and planning for this age group. And uh, also being very tailored in the approach that we have because it is also not a homogeneous group, as I said and also understand the intersectionality of issues that are presented across all the age groups within the adolescence stage. You know, we also need to look at strategies and programs in planning that are supporting adolescents living with HIV who are out of school. Much of um, the programs um, are more planned towards a captive audience, which is more within school, and we do an acknowledgement that school is a protective factor. And but we also need to look at those who are out of school. As the data that has been presented now is showing that you know uh, most of uh, the ad adolescents living with HIV are not even in school or have not completed grade uh, twelve, as, as as was presented. What? How do we prioritize? and plan interventions for, for, for those young people? What approaches are we, are we employing to reach uh, those adolescents in those instances as well? 
um, we also need to be cognizant of the what the issues that they are confronted with, which including learning new skills, negotiating condom use, real or perceived stigma and discrimination, and the need to be able to, to, to earn money. These are some of the needs that we need to be looking at uh, when we are planning programming uh, for, for, for young people living with HIV. We also, more importantly as well, need to look at the socioeconomic drivers as uh, one of the presenters uh, mentioned earlier that predispose adolescents to risky behaviors and, and, and also uh, adolescents living with HIV. You know, those are that make you young people more tolerant. And as we have seen, the research that is being presented is that uh, it, it, it seems adolescents living with HIV are more tolerant to risky behaviors. Maybe we need to understand far more in terms of what are the drivers of that, what is that, and maybe we need to also uh, have uh, more insights in that area in terms of the vast significant differences between uh, or, or tolerance to risk uh, for, 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 a, for, for a young person. When uh, you are already aware of your status, uh, what are those, what are at a psychological level, at a self-efficacy level, a person, sense of self-agency, what are those uh, areas that uh, this uh, adolescent is battling with and what are the relevant programs that would be effective uh, to uh, support this young person to have that sense of self-agency or personal agency rather. At programming level, uh, I'm going to, I'm just left with uh, two more slides. At program level, there are also questions that I needed uh, or that I look at, we need to consider uh, when we do in programming uh, for, for relevance in terms of uh, programming, what is the relevance, the extent to which the objectives for programming are consistent with the needs and priorities of adolescents. Uh, and effectiveness of programming, uh, what are the processes that need to be, to be put in place? And efficiency uh, levels in terms of what are the investments and resources in areas that need to yield positive health outcomes for adolescents uh, living with HIV? What has been the experience? Have we put enough resourcing and, and, and capacitated uh, processes to be efficient enough to really roll out interventions that are going to be supportive to uh, young, young people. What we are learning in terms of programming is that what, is, what, 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 I, what we've always had is that young people feel left behind, their voice is not heard. So it is important in our programming to really have a consultative approach and engage and have meaningful participation of adolescents in program planning, design and implementation, and even in the monitoring and evaluation processes that follow from there on so that we have an inclusive approach and we are really in, uh, 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 responding to needs of young people as they present them as their lived experiences. We also have seen from the programs, uh, more specifically, if we look at the She Conquers campaign and some of the recommendations coming from it is that we focus, yes, we know that vulnerabilities are more slanted towards um, uh, adolescent girls and young women, but we need more gender inclusive programming that includes uh, young men and boys in 
you know, uh, interventions that are being designed. So those are some of the things that are also coming out in terms of what are we looking at, especially when we're looking at uh, preventative measures, uh, preventative approaches uh, that we, if we are to um, a, a look at having more gains in, in the prevention space. We need to have, as I said earlier, in programming targeted interventions for 10 to 14 year olds, and also looking at how to uh, mitigate risk of them being infected and not catch them when they are already at the late adolescent stage, but rather start, you know, uh, age appropriate and, and, and relevant uh, interventions earlier on such that um, where they are better able to navigate risk and uh, have informed choices uh, when they get to that point uh, where they are now in a stage where they, 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 they are confronted with, with um, uh, choices that they need to make. We also need to look at, Mpumi uh, uh, also uh, made this in the recommendations that we need to look at providing or strengthening programs within school because we know that school is a protective environment and the research has also shown us what um, that, that the self-efficacy of being in school and how that you know prolongs or rather the longer a, a, a young person stays in school uh, the better chances of a better a positive health outcomes. Uh, we need to look at uh, programs such as comprehensive sexuality education uh, that can really assist in a, an increase on uptake of HIV and SRHR services. We also need to look at capacity building uh, for um, community actors, what we would call community, community actors. We have capacity building on CSE, on comprehensive sexuality education for educators, but we need to look at how do we extend this um, uh, program for parents, for you know, caregivers, for traditional and religious leaders, and outside the schooling environment in a community where a child interacts as well, and assist um, uh, families, uh, with, uh, who, families with adolescents living with HIV with supportive networks. And um, earlier on, it was also mentioned that um, programs that are supportive for families are not enough, uh, really are, are, are not the families feeling more and more um, vulnerable and unable to handle some of um, the issues that they grapple with in, in, in with sexual reproductive health and rights specifically, exacerbated by socioeconomic conditions that are mainly poor, knowing uh, how our um, uh, country is structured with, you know, having more people living in um, levels below poverty and how they struggle as well to uh, really at, uh, look at uh, health outcomes and not predispose or become tolerant to risk behaviors. Um, Further on, I think uh, HIV prevention strategies in, 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 in programs need to be intensified. We have put a pedal off, uh, our foot off the pedal rather, on prevention strategies on, HI, on, on, on HIV, SRH. And uh, maybe 
could be related to some of the issues that were raised, you know, in uh, treatment fatigue or HIV fatigue. But we are seeing more with the data that is coming through that uh, the uh, adolescents continue to be uh, particularly adversely uh, affected and infection rates, incident, rates of incidence and prevalence are still not significantly changing. Instead, they are increasing. So we need to uh, put uh, more efforts in HIV prevention approaches, uh, prevention campaigns, using really social behavior change communication strategies that are inclusive, that ensure that we are leaving no one behind in, 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 what, in what we do. Just to, to summarize really what um, in programming for uh, adolescents living with HIV, it's the first is to place adolescents at the center of action, that they need to be included, they need to be part and they need to be heard as well and feel that they are part of creating solutions. We need to deliver intentional multi-sectoral programs that are inclusive. Mo was also presented earlier about holistic programs. So that is what we need to, it has to be intentional. It has to be multi-sectoral. We have to work at all levels from the family structure, more actually from the micro level, from an individual, a young person themselves and understanding the psyche, the psychological development, the development stage, the supportive structures at family level, at societal level, and more at other levels as well. So not only working upstream when we have great policies, but and, and not looking at how these policies has a, a, a really trickle down and cascade into interventions and programs uh, that are implemented and are relevant uh, for the intended uh, beneficiaries. We need to have inclusive approaches for you know, boys and, and men to tackle issues of gender inequality, discrimination, and GPV, as most of the issues we know, these are this, uh, one of the key drivers of HIV infections. And we also need to still look at specific risks and barriers that uh, young uh, adolescent girls and young women are, are, are faced with. I like what Mpumi also presented in terms of a recommendation, and she already alluded to a package of services that adolescent uh, um, living with HIV uh, that needs to be considered, which should be including mental health, SRH and sexual reproductive and health and rights issues, psychosocial support and issues of psychosocial support and mental health are one of the key programmatic areas that are not really doing really well and where there is a need for really those interventions and programming around that to be intensified. We need to look at social security programs we, look at, we need to look at education and training, and we really need to look at in, in economic empowerment interventions um, that adolescents living with HIV uh, would need. In conclusion, um, UNFPA is contributing through its programming and support to a government at, in, 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 at various levels. Uh, at the center of UNFPA's um, mandate is really ensuring that, that, that youth development agenda is strengthened. And we place youth, uh, we understand that adolescents and young people 
are diverse and must actively be uh, actively engaged at the center and the design of useful integrated HIVs and uh, SRHR responses for both in and out of school youth. We have a flagship uh, program which is called the Safeguard Young People Program, uh, which uh, focuses on adolescents and youth SRHR. This is a regional program of UNFPA. South Africa is one of the countries that is also uh, implementing uh, this program. It focuses really on empowerment of adolescents and young people aged 10 to 24 to protect themselves from uh, sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, unwanted pregnancies, unsafe abortions, early marriages, uh, gender-based violence, and harmful cultural practices, also promoting gender equitable norms and protective behaviors. It is an evidence-based programming, much as um, uh, we're supporting at an upstream level, at policy level, we also look ahead, uh, 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 um, focus um, provinces and uh, districts where programs are implemented through implementing partners, through government uh, partners, really to look at, uh, to, to, to create evidence for scale up and to really uh, create uh, lessons for a national scale up of those programs and um, for long-term uh, adolescent sexual reproductive health uh, programming. Some of these programs um, uh, or interventions that UNFPA have supported include at national level, which is upstream level in terms of advocacy and policy dialogue, we continue to support the Department of Women, uh, Youth and Persons with Disabilities on um, the national youth policy that is currently, has been currently reviewed and uh, uh, is, 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 is supposed to be launched uh, very soon, uh, which ends in 2030. The review of that uh, policy, UNFPA has supported that and continues to look at that because of uh, our mandate on youth development agenda. We also look at system strengthening and capacity building. We were talking about uh, looking at capacity building of uh, uh, public health um, systems and looking at um, how do we also um, ensure adolescent youth-friendly services uh, strengthening and that, uh, it, they, that, that the environment continues to be uh, accessible, you know, for young people and friendly for them to, 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 to use this, to access the services themselves. We're looking at PrEP advocacy. Dr. Farid was talking about PrEP earlier, and we do believe that this is they, we need more uh, advocacy on PrEP and, and, and also on family planning. We do support a, a comprehensive sexuality education, primarily focusing for uh, youth out of school. And uh, now looking at how do we then include um, uh, community actors, as I mentioned earlier, parents, uh, community leaders, and other caregivers within, uh, at, at community level. Um, we also very much focus on data and uh, ensuring that we, we strengthen systems, health systems on um, collection of disaggregation of uh, disaggregated data on age, 
sex and types of services that are offered at health facilities. We continue to support initiatives such as, and, and, and institutions um, uh, like HSRC and partner with, uh, with such institutions to, for national knowledge generation and sharing. And we continuously look at that for advocacy planning and programming as this is the area that we want to uh, contribute towards in ensuring that young people's um, uh, health outcomes are, uh, are realized. I think I will stop there and uh, wait for any questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Mahokodi, uh, for touching on these very important challenges that are facing uh, adolescent girls and young women and looking at um, you know, what should be considered in thinking about uh, programming and also policy relevant issues. Now, uh, I will uh, now, we'll now go to the next section, which is now uh, our discussions and, and questions. So I'll open up for any questions that uh, colleagues might have, please do indicate your, your name as well as uh, maybe the institution where you come from uh, so that uh, we can direct also the questions uh, to, to relevant colleagues to respond to. Now we'll open up for questions, then we'll be co-chairing with my co-chair uh, in, in dealing with the questions. Are there any questions, colleagues? Uh, colleagues, you may also raise your hands just to also indicate if you have a question that you would like to verbalize. I don't seem to see any hand this side. Um, I'm not seeing a hand as well because it, it usually pops up. Tabo, any questions that you might have received on your side? No, I don't see any hand raised. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Tabo. And thank you, Kuketso. Uh, there were uh, questions or, or comments or queries about whether uh, the slides will be made uh, available. Uh, I would just like to confirm that we'll package the material together. Uh, and then uh, make the slides available through our, our organizers. So this this will be shared, will be made available accordingly, colleagues. And also as indicated earlier on by my colleague Bumi that uh, the report is being uh, finalized by way of printing. So that will be made um, uh, uh, available also in due course. Uh, now, since there are no questions at the moment, then we'll move on to the next section. that have been indicated. Uh, ah. uh, Davids and DN. Ah, thank you, thank you. Uh, go ahead, colleagues. I think we'll start with uh, DN and then we'll go to Adlai. Thank uh, you. Limits? Okay, go ahead. I you wonder if I'm audible, I'm audible enough. Yes, you yes, are. we can hear you. Oh, thank you very much for the presentations right. as well. You're my a question I want to would ask like to yourself, would you like to introduce yourself sir, first uh, it's David Ngubuga just a concerned citizen from no institution thanks uh, I would like to ask in terms in regards with the transit of of the 
of HIV, yeah, of the virus. Did anyone also did research about the transit, maybe perhaps in Africa or globally, as I believe uh, it's a blanket that covers the whole globe. So did anyone did research about the transit also of, of, the, of the virus, of the AIDS and HIV also, it helps maybe like people travel in terms instant, other instances, people apply for visas, do people, apply visa in regards with their HIV status. Yeah, even maybe employment also, where sometimes they will require uh, status. So the discrimination of, of the virus also in that regard. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you very much. Uh, obviously dealing with the HIV epidemic uh, uh, being an uh, infectious disease, it follows the movement of, of, of people. But maybe I will uh, ask colleagues if uh, they would like to, to respond on, uh, on some of those issues. Uh, Mbumi, uh, Dr. Woods, Alicia, Imba would like to give a comment, a response. Hi, hi, Kangelan. It's it's Mpumi. I will I will attempt. I'm not sure if I I understood the question. I think there was a, a a part which is I think you've just responded to, but there's also a part that that talks to uh, discrimination and and rights of of people living with HIV around being tested um, to gain visas and uh, uh, I guess also employment. And I know that there are some sectors where testing um, might be you know, done for purposes of uh, employing a person, especially in areas where there's, there's risks. But I think South Africa has um, very uh, strong I mean, legislation that protects people from being discriminated, but it still happens. Um, I know that sometimes even in the domestic situation, we've heard of, of cases of uh, um, helpers who, who are asked to, to you know, do HIV tests or TB test or then get fired if they test positive or their employer knows. So it's all, you know, work that needs to be done around stigma and, you know, educating those living with HIV and also educating those that are, um, are not living with HIV about rights of, of people living with HIV. So I, I hope I've covered it and if not, colleagues can also jump in. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Mbumi. Uh, Rebecca, you want to say something? Thank you, Prof. I think that's Mbumi covered my response. Thank you very much. Uh, Atlai, you've got your hand up. Yalga, thank you very much, uh, Prof. Zuma. Atlai Davis from the HSRC. My question is basically to Pumi uh, on the recommendation or suggestion that uh, um, for a live uh, adolescence, the question of intervention or support at the school level um, through social workers and, and, and school-based health services. Uh, it sounds a great idea, but I'm sure the suggestion would be that these things should be available for the general school-going population. The question is really, do we see that as a uh, feasible suggestion, given that in 30 years almost of uh, democracy, 
that kind of services has not been rolled out to the majority of schools um, that we have? What is the potential for it to become a reality for uh, alive um, uh, learners uh, who are based at schools? Thank you. Okay. Um, do you want to take the other question so that when we answer, can answer yes, if sure. you, I see Karabo also, the hand is up. Uh, yes, um, before we take uh, Karabo, I, I see there's also one question that was indicated in the chat box that says, um, sorry, I might have missed this. I heard that there are disclosure policies. Where can I find these policies from Mobile Oyam? Okay. Okay, then we'll note that and then move on to Karabo, then colleagues will respond uh, comprehensively. Okay. You can go ahead, Kabaro. Yeah, my name is Kabaro. I'm a social worker from the Royal Bafuting Administration in Rustenburg. My question is based on what I've recently seen on the news that um, there's been a two month injectable form of HIV prevention. So I just wanted to ask from the team if we see that going to help in terms of prevention of HIV for the um, adolescents specifically, if that would help because they were saying instead of taking a pill every day, it seems like the injection and because it's a two month um, injection, it would sort of like relieve some in burden of taking the pills every day. I, so my question is, do we see that benefiting this specific target group? Thank you. Okay, uh, we'll take those, uh, sorry, Chair, continue. Sure, sure, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to respond to the question from um, Adlai, which was directed to me, and then I'll leave the other questions to the other colleagues and also invite uh, medical doctors in the team. I don't know if Sizulu is here, uh, Farid might have already left, but I know that there are other colleagues that will be able to answer Kabaro's uh, question. Um, I think I'd like, I, I think your, your question, you want to know how feasible would it be to use schools as a, as a place for interventions? and what resources are there and not there and, and, and how as a country we could make those available. And uh, I think there was a third element to, the, to your question, but I think definitely our, our schools are not the same. And I don't think any, any of us can, can propose that we, the, the schools are resourced the same. In, in any province, you have schools that have resources, especially your Model C kind of schools who will even have a psychology and a nurse employed in the setup. And then you have schools without resources. But what I, I think we are realizing is that there is an opportunity to use schools for, for interventions. I went to a, a, a school in a rural area called Umsinga in KwaZulu-Natal years ago. And one of the, the methods or models of providing um, healthcare in that setting was using mobile units or mobile cars. So on a particular day, sometimes once a, a week, sometimes once a month, depending on what is happening around, um, weather-wise and so on, the nurses would come to the school and provide um, healthcare. Those that uh, needed referrals would then be referred to the 
to the nearest school. So I think there are, there are models that might, we might not be able to provide a nurse and a, a counselor for every school, but I don't think that we shouldn't have ambition to improve the situation. And the other part of your question was dealing with, shouldn't this focus on all youth? Yes, of course, it should focus on all youth. But I think the data that we presented shows you clearly um, who is not being reached by our prevention messages. If you are seeing news being low in the population of adolescents living with HIV, it should concern you. Um, if we know that they're not being reached by art, it should concern us. So we need to find ways. If the clinic is not a place that is easy to access because of transport, because of attitudes of nurses and so on, then we need to find other ways, whether they are mobile or stationed, but we need to find other ways of thinking outside the box. And I think that is what will be required as people get fatigued um, about um, HIV. Thank you. Thanks a lot, um, uh, Dr. Zungu. Uh, Dr. Moyo, I'm not sure if you could respond to that uh, issue of the injectable PrEP that was asked. Okay. Hi. Oh, um, okay, thank you. Thanks, Kangenani. I, I just want to start by apologizing. I missed um, the first part of the question. Um, I don't know if we can have it back again. Can you hear me? Um, yes, we can. Gabaro, uh, can you please also just try to uh, just say your question again so that she can be able to note it? Thanks. Okay. Um, yes, I was um, saying about the injectable prep because um, different speakers, as I was listening, did mention about the uh, teenagers defaulting on treatment, but now I'm looking at uh, another, as a way of um, prevention. If the uh, current um, two months injectable uh, prep that is currently being uh, tested would be beneficial for this specific target group, should it work? Do we see it benefiting the adolescents in terms of preventing them being infected with HIV. Thank you. We'll take it back to you, uh, Sizuli Moya. Thank you. Um, so this, I think the, the new in injectable PrEP as the data was recently released is quite an exciting development in the field. I think that given what has been presented today and what we know as I think uh, Dr. Farid said, we, we, we knew about some of these issues around retention on treatment and staying on treatment, but this data is so empirical and in our face. And we've been looking for new ways and innovations to sustain people on, on treatment for because it's lifelong. And I think a point was made that if, imagine starting taking medication and these tablets from a very early age and it's lifelong. And there are so many issues that have already been discussed in the challenges. So this is really one of the breakthroughs that I think has come into the space. It eliminates a lot of challenges. Uh, obviously, there is the repeat, the need to go and get the repeat injection, 
but it takes away the burden on a day-to-day -day basis. It takes away having to remember every day um, to take uh, the medication. So this is something that is positive, and this is something that I think as people in the space, we look forward to having to having a big impact in dealing with some of the challenges uh, that we know of. I think also taking from other diseases that we know, injectables come with a lot of advantage, uh, you know, in the medical space. And we, we see this as also playing into that, into that framework that we look forward that it would really alleviate some of the, uh, you know, the problems that, that we have. I'm just remembering one of the things that um, Rebecca presented where one teenager said that they felt that their body was smelling of this antiretrovirals. I mean, that's a real concern and it can be something that, you know, uh, if they share with their friends, don't take this because you smell like this. So an injectable is something that we, we foresee as taking away some of these challenges that the, the adolescents face. So I think from a perspective, from the medical perspective, this is something that's a breakthrough. And we hope that we'll be able to see it, you know, coming into the space in South Africa. And it, it will definitely have, uh, have an impact. Thank you. Thank you. Um, is there anyone who would like to respond to the question on disclosure policies? Maybe before um, that, oh, maybe uh, Dr. Farid would also <laughs> add on the comment that made by uh, Dr. Moyo. Uh, just to agree completely, you know, um, the injectable is the new breakthrough in antiretroviral treatment and prevention. The Karabo, uh, uh, the the reports you referred to are for uh, using injectables as pre-exposure prophylaxis. The MRC uh, Durban office was one of the study sites for that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's shown that it's far superior to taking a pill uh, every day. And it would be a, a year or two before it gets registered and licensed in South Africa. But in our social impact bond, we've already said that once it becomes available, we'll switch and offer girls who want the injectable uh, prep uh, to take it. Uh, and, and, you know, that makes it very possible to seriously address the, so it's a breakthrough. But what's also coming down the pike is a two-month injectable for treatment using a drug called cabotegravir. And uh, the results are not out on that, but they look very promising. So, so this is, injectable is, is the new, uh, is the, you know, the latest thing in, uh, 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 latest advance, shall we say, both for treatment and for prevention. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Dr. Farid. Um, I would also like to hear a response on the disclosure policies. Hi, Kokenso, it's Alicia here. Um, so just in response to Ms. Kuyama's question around disclosure policies, uh, the Department of Health website, there are various disclosure guidelines for children and especially adolescents. Um, and then there's also um, on justice.gov.za, there are legal aspects of HIV and um, policies around disclosure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just okay. quickly to say that uh, the HIV Clinician Society has got a very nice policy on disclosure to adolescents. So I would definitely refer you to that too. That's what I use in my practice. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Farid. Um, 
I think we'll take a, a round of the last questions because we are a little bit over time. I see there's one more question from DN. Uh, DN, you can go right ahead. Thank you very much, Kokito. Yeah, my question in terms of yeah, data gathering, yeah, the states we, which were presented earlier on. So I wanted to understand now, like, for instance, like we understand this, uh, how, how is the data actually gathered? Because some instances, people uh, don't want to come out, people just ignorant about uh, yeah, disclosing uh, status or taking care or something like that. Some it's tradition, some it's taboo, some, yeah, it's just pressure. And so yeah, I wanted to understand the disclosure policy, would that go to that extent maybe to find maybe like statistics like to gather for census instead that we end up like even questioning about uh, people's status for that uh, in that regard. Yeah, thank you very much. The data gathering part of it. Sure. The thanks, a lot, uh, th thanks a lot uh, for, for that question. The, the, these data are collected using, um, uh, uh, you know, this uh, secondary, well, we collect data uh, where we go to household that have been randomly selected. Uh, where people are invited to participate from those households uh, nationally that have been randomly selected and within each household, individuals are invited to participate and a detailed questionnaire is then uh, administered uh, to which people can opt out uh, uh, to the interview or continue with, uh, with, the, with the interview. So this is a, a multi-state stratified representative sample that is uh, organized, it's been implemented over the years uh, we're actually now uh, preparing for the sixth wave of, uh, of the survey. So that is in a nutshell, how this information has been collected, the statistics that have been uh, provided Yeah, But uh, if you need more details, uh, we do have reports that have been uh, uh, published, uh, could be available uh, on our HSRC website, hsrc.ac.za. And then you just maybe Google uh, or for, for SEPSAM or National HIV Prevalence Report, you'll be able to get more details about this. Thank you very much. Over to you, Koketo. Okay, thank you, colleagues. Um, thank you so much for your valued participation and being able to really engage meaningfully in, um, in today's engagement. Um, I would just like to just give a, a, a few closing remarks in terms of just a summary of the key takeaways that I feel were, were very crucial and important in today's engagement. I think it was very interesting to see that healthcare workers play an active role in encouraging adherence because a lot of times we hear of very negative stories like colleagues have indicated attached to healthcare workers. So it is very interesting to see that the, 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 the journey to uh, adolescent and youth-friendly services is, is in fact progressive and maybe we are certainly making our way there. And I'd also like to also agree with Dr. Mpumuwit that further capacitation of these healthcare workers is required just to ensure that we have that, uh, um, that, um, that across the board with all care, healthcare workers in all facilities across the country. And it is also very concerning to note that um, adolescents living with HIV have, have significantly higher sexual debut than those that are HIV negative, especially interestingly to note that 
some of them may not even be aware of their HIV status and which this could be a very uh, risky behavior, especially to their counterpart as well as also risking pregnancy and then infecting the child because that particular um, aleph wouldn't be on um, any kind of ART or any kind of preventative uh, method. So um, also interesting to, to note that uh, it, it came up in most, most of the present, presentation that psychological support is key and crucial in, in ensuring that we, we, we give continual support to AL living with HIV because um, of how we've then seen that in majority of the questions that have came up, they, they seem to have higher risks or, or rather high or, or more of a risky behavior than all the, the, the other groups that also have been looked into. So I think also just in light of the CS um, the CSE program, it is important to to then also use that as a as a key tool because most of these adolescents, especially 10 to 19, are, are in schools. So it is important then to use that CSE tool to then better equip them to then know how to adhere on treatment as, as colleagues have, have indicated, and also just to move beyond the danger, disease, and damage control model when, uh, when presenting the curriculum. And also to just uh, ensure that we promote the curriculum in a positive light, because we can also, I think it is also important to note that maybe this, the school dropout could also be because of how uh, HIV education is framed also in schools. So it is, it is difficult to stay in schools because of discrimination and the segregation and so forth. So um, I also think it is important that uh, adolescents living with HIV are further capacitated to take the lead in the interventions that are put forward for them to also bring forth the solutions that they think they can, that can work for them um, as, as people that are experiencing all of these changes and all of, uh, all of these um, interventions. And then also expanding on the ethnographic research approaches that have been presented, I think would be very useful just to, to understand better what are the lived experiences of these AGYW. I think researches such as this one were, are very useful just to ensure that you know, it, 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 we are more informed in terms of how to respond smoothly uh, and to have a, a more impactful uh, approach. So also contributing to the country goals and aligning the interventions to, to the NSP in a multi-sectoral approach will also uh, uh, be key to ensuring that we are, we are able to be progressive as a country and contributing uh, meaningfully. So I would just like to thank the HSRC um, and the MRC for really allowing us an opportunity to engage in this forum today and being able to also find out, find all these key findings that I think we can all take today and just integrate in some of the interventions that we are putting together and some of the policies that we are putting together. And it is also very, very interesting to then find out that a youth dialogue is also being planned so that also young people are engaged on these issues and it just doesn't end on, on higher levels, but also young people are con can contribute meaningfully to these findings and also going forward to other programming. So I would like to really thank uh, the HSRC for giving me also an opportunity to co-chair in this, as a young person, to co-chair in this forum. And yes, I will hand it back over to uh, Prof. Kangelan. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, So This is really great. And also to thank um, all colleagues for making themselves uh, available to attend uh, to this um, uh, webinar. You know, colleagues were still uh, at the center of the epidemic. The issues around HIV are important today. Uh, as they were before, even if, if not more than uh, they, they were before. So we still all have the responsibility to make sure 
that uh, we prevent new infections. We make sure that uh, we provide support and make sure that uh, we, we assist in whatever way possible and continue doing research to deal with the, the stigma as it is one of the uh, uh, you know, important barriers to accessing treatment. And I'm happy that there is work that is going on uh, uh, looking at these issues around the stigma uh, to deal with uh, the stigma around the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, now, colleagues, uh, we come to an end of our webinar. Uh, indeed, I'm really uh, thankful for, for the time. I know that uh, we went a little bit uh, over time. Uh, my apologies for that, but I thought uh, the discussions were very important and uh, I could not uh, uh, interrupt. And also, colleagues, to emphasize the fact that uh, we're still at the center of another epidemic and we still need to take care of ourselves, uh, stay safe, and uh, practice all the necessary precautions to prevent the transmission of this uh, COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, we have now come to an end of our webinar. Uh, I want to wish you all a pleasant day ahead, and thank you very much, colleagues.